In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. Remember our outline of the book, chapters 1 through 6 is largely narrative, it's story, and chapters 7 through 12 are referring to prophecy, and not in every case, but in most cases referring to end times prophecy. Also, chapters 2 through 7 were in Aramaic, referring primarily to the nations around the world, the successors to Babylon, but chapter 1 and then now chapter 8 through 12, we're back in the Hebrew language. And this is significant because these prophecies that are given are primarily relating to the nation of Israel, to the fate of the Jews. And you're going to see that is very much the case today. So these are some structural markers to keep in mind. Just important to know that, that these things were not just thrown together haphazardly, but that there was thought and there was skill and there was intent behind them that we can miss if we just read it in the English. And he says that this was in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Remember chapter 7, the prophecy that he received there, that vision was in the first year of the reign of King Belshazzar, which took us back before the handwriting on the wall, that this was given before those events took place. And so is this. This is two years later, and we are reasonably certain, and I, I shouldn't even say reasonably, we're certain about the date of this prophecy now. The closer we get to the modern day, of course, the easier it becomes. This vision came to Daniel around 550 B.C., 551, 550 BC. That is the third year of the regency of King Belshazzar. Remember we talked about his father Nabonidus had stepped back from the rulership of Babylon itself. He had gone to the city of Tema. Um, Many people believe and history seems to tell us that he was on some kind of spiritual vision quest during this time. And he left his son Belshazzar in charge. And during the third year of that period, Daniel is in his 50s, maybe getting into his 60s at this point. He receives another vision. And you should note in verse 1, he, he mentions after that which appeared to me at the first. So he's saying this is not the same thing. Some of these details are the same, but he's saying this is a different event, a different vision, even though some of these things will be similar to one another. Daniel chapter 8 is a prophecy of the end of the Persian Empire, the rise of the Greek Empire, and the eventual oppression that a Greek king would bring about on the nation of Israel. This prophecy in this chapter is so specific and is so detailed that it has caused secular scholars to assign a different date to the book of Daniel because they do not believe that it could be prophetic. They read these details, and if you were just to ignore the content, meaning the prophetic aspect of the book of Daniel, you would absolutely date it to the date that we have here, during the time of Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar, during the reign of Babylon and the very beginning of Persia under Darius. The Aramaic language in particular is an older kind of Aramaic than the one that was used during the days of the Maccabees, which is when secular scholars say this had to have been written. But even though everything would cause you to say that this was written when it says it was written, this prophecy in particular is so detailed and so specific, secular scholars see this and go, there's no way he could have known this ahead of time. Therefore, it had to have been written later, even though every other indication would point you in the opposite direction, but they simply have to say, nobody could know this ahead of time. He has to have been writing history and not prophecy. 
Which tells us as Christians who have no problem in believing a God who knows the future, that these things are absolutely confirmed and gives us faith in the rest of the book of Daniel, doesn't it? In fact, God in the Bible holds up his ability to tell the future, not only to tell the future, but to actualize and to make it happen the way he said as evidence of his deity. Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11. This is one of the key passages to know in relation to these things. The Lord says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Well, what is it about God that is so unique? How is he not like anyone else? He says, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. God, to his people who were straying and going after these false idols, says, You will not find another God like me. Not only that, you will never find another God, period. But all of these usurping false angels that you're worshiping as deities, they can't tell the future like I can. I can tell the future and make it happen. I love how he says, I can say that a bird will come from the east and I can make that happen because he's God Almighty. He is El Shaddai, the Almighty God. And so when we read these passages, it should not surprise us to find that God has told the future and that it happened just the way he said it. There are even some Christians today, unfortunately, and there always have been those of this bent, that are really hesitant and embarrassed to say things like the Bible tells the future. And isn't it remarkable, though, you watch every, every movie and every book and every novel and TV series has some ancient prophecy that's being fulfilled. It's almost like people kind of wish this was true and are fascinated by it. And yet, while some Christians do indeed go overboard with this stuff, there are a lot more that say, oh, just don't talk about that. It makes us sound silly. It doesn't make us sound silly. If you actually look at it like we look at it today, the Lord knew well ahead of time what was going to happen, and he made it happen. And we're going to see in this chapter a very specific instance of that, and it'll remind us we can trust the Lord for our future. And if you still doubt after reading this, let me remind you, the book of Daniel this chapter here was written more than 200 years before the events that we're going to discuss today actually happened. The Bible was not written in one go, just put all together at one time. It is a compilation of different writings that are hundreds and sometimes even thousands of years apart. And when one book says that something happened that refers back to a previous book, that's not just foreshadowing by a novelist. This is a record of something that was prophesied and then fulfilled. So let's get into this. We're going to do it like we did last time. It's a very fantastic vision that Daniel has with beasts and horns and all the rest. So we're going to go through very quickly the actual vision part of it and make sure that we grasp it and then the angel will come and interpret it for Daniel and that's when we'll slow down. So he has a vision, third year of King Belshazzar, verse two. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. You notice all these details. This is important. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns 
And both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Okay, so he has the vision, and in the vision, he is at Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. Susa was the capital of Persia. In Nehemiah chapter 1, we read that Nehemiah was the cupbearer for the Persian king in Susa. In Esther chapter 1, we have all the story that unfolds of, of Esther and Haman and Mordecai and the king. That all happened in Susa, which was the capital of Persia. It's called the citadel of Persia. The Ulai Canal, which we now know and did in fact exist. There are things that people love to say. that We don't even have any history of that. And then, of course, we discover it. It happens over and over again. It is not 1,000% clear if Daniel was in Susa in person when he had the vision or if he just was in the vision he was in Susa at the time. Daniel was a diplomat, as you know. He was a government official. It could be that he was sent to Susa for some sort of official business and while he was there, God gave him a vision or he was in Babylon, had the vision and when he opened his eyes, he recognized that he was in Susa. It does not affect how we interpret this passage at all. Now, what does he see? He sees a ram, which is a male sheep, you know that, with two horns. And he says, they were both high, big old horns, but one was higher than the other. And the one that was higher came up after the other one. So it seems like he watches this ram and he almost watches the horns unfold. And they both come out, but the second one is way bigger than the other one. So you get a lopsided ram, kind of like we had a lopsided bear in the previous chapter. And that is an important connection. And it rampages every direction but east. It doesn't go to the east. And it becomes great. No one's stopping him. So there's this giant ram with one horn bigger than the other, budding north and south and west and trampling over all these other animals. Okay? That's the vision. Part two, verse five. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. We have a ram, now we have a goat, and it comes flying over the earth from the west. And it has one conspicuous horn in between its eyes. Goats, as I'm sure you are aware, typically have two horns. This one only has one coming out from right between its eyes. And it says, in wrath... It strikes the ram, it breaks its horns, it tramples it down, and the goat becomes great. But then it says, while he is strong, the horn breaks, and instead of the one horn, four horns come up on its head. And it says, for the four winds of heaven, as almost as in every direction, he had four horns. So I hope you're getting the picture. You've got the lopsided ram that's rampaging, and then out of the west comes this big old goat with one horn, butts it to the ground, breaks its horns, tramples it, its horn breaks, and four come up in its place. Part three, verse nine. 
out of one of them, meaning one of those four horns, came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. That is, taken away from the prince of the host. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it altogether with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he, that is the Holy One, said to me, For twenty-three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Okay, so we've got the ram with two horns, one bigger than the other. It's rampaging until the goat comes out of the west with one horn. Breaks the horns of the ram, and then its one horn breaks into four. We have four horns now. Out of one of those four comes a little horn. But you see that it, like the other one from chapter 7, it starts out little and it grows great, specifically to the south, to the east, and to the glorious land. That, that phrase, glorious land, is actually in Hebrew just even to the beautiful. This is a reference to the land of Israel. And it says it grew so great even to the host of heaven, which, of course, this is a reference to angels, the hosts of heaven, right? The heavenly host. It says he even throws down hosts, which are like armies and stars, down and trampling them. So there's, there's heavenly aspect to this little horn's victory. It, it, it grows as great as the prince of the host, which that's a capital P. That's, that's a reference to the Lord. Removing his sanctuary and his burnt offering. So not only is he conquering this little horn, not only is he ruling, he's oppressing the people of Israel and arrogating himself against the Lord. Why? He says because of transgression, that he will throw truth to the ground, this little horn. And then we have these two angels discussing how long, how long is the sanctuary going to be overthrown and defiled? And they give a very specific number, 2,300 evenings and mornings. So do you have the picture now? You've got the ram, which is defeated by the goat. The goat's one horn turns into four horns. Out of one of them comes a little horn that rampages over Israel, that destroys and defiles the sanctuary and the holy place for 2,300 evenings and mornings until it is restored. So that's the vision. Again, kind of, kind of crazy. <laughs> Have a vision like that. What is this all about? Well, lucky for us, Daniel's going to ask and he's going to receive an explanation just like he did last time. Let's look at verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, that's the canal in Susa, remember, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. And, but he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. 
He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. Daniel wants to understand, and he seeks to understand. You can imagine, say, Lord, what is this, right? And a voice echoes over the canal, and he sees this man, one like a man, but this is the angel Gabriel. So remember, there are some angels in the Bible that are like wheels within wheels and six wings, and, but some angels just look like men. So there are some people that want to get cute and say, why did we ever think angels looked like people? Well, because of things like this, right? But it, apparently this guy was intimidating enough that it caused Daniel to pass out. So, you know, remember, angels are fearsome warriors of the Lord, and it's, it's not always a pleasant experience encountering one. Gabriel. That name, it comes from two Hebrew words, Geber, which means warrior, hero, mighty man. When it talks about the mighty men of David, it's the plural form of this word, Geber, the Geberim of David. Now, when you add Gebor or Geber with El, which is the name of God, right? Like Elohim, Gabriel means God is my hero or God is my warrior, And Gabriel, in fact, is one of only two named angels in the Bible. We have Gabriel. The other one is Michael. And we're going to see Gabriel twice more. Well, once more here in the book of Daniel and then twice in the book of Luke when he comes to Zechariah to announce the birth of John the Baptist and when he comes to Mary to announce the birth of Jesus. So Gabriel seems to be a messenger of the Lord. Michael is the prince of Israel. He is the warrior angel that oversees Israel. We'll talk about him more later. So later intertestamental books would give names to lots of different angels. So you maybe have heard of the name Raphael. He was an angel before he was a ninja turtle. And then there's Uriel. Some of y'all don't get that. It's okay. All right. Uriel is another give, name given to one. It talks about the seven archangels. Um, that's not in the Bible. It's tradition. It's Hebrew tradition. Um, but we only have the two, Gabriel and Michael. And he comes and tells him, I'm going to tell you what this is. Daniel passes out, but the angel says, oh, son of man, which is right. It's how the Lord addresses Ezekiel in the book of Ezekiel. It's kind of like, you're just a man, right? I'm an angel. You're a son of Adam. You're a son of man. And he, he comforts him. This is what happens in the Bible. When you encounter an angel of the Lord, one of the first words they always say is, do not be what? Afraid. Afraid. Devil wants to intimidate you and scare you. The Lord's representatives want to give you peace and joy. Now, he says that this thing that you just saw is for the time of the end. This is important to to think about here because almost every time, and you might even say every time, when you see for the time of the end, this is referring to the end with a capital E, as in the last days, the eschaton, the great tribulation, the day of the Lord, that time period. And Daniel will use this phrase quite a lot. And every time it refers to that. Here's the interesting thing. The prophecy that we have just seen and is about to be explained has already been fulfilled in history. So the question becomes, in what sense does this refer to the end? Now, it could be that he's saying this is the end of the trouble that your people are going to face in terms of facing Persia, facing Greece afterward. So he's saying that this is the end and finally you guys will get some rest and some peace, which is true. Uh, But I also think what he's saying is these events that are about to happen in history are a typological picture for what is going to happen at the end, meaning they are part of a pattern. You look at what happens at this point of history and it foreshadows and pictures what is going to happen at the very end. 
Just like in 1 John 2.18, John the Apostle talked about there are many little a antichrists, but we are looking forward, well, not really looking forward, but we are waiting for the capital A antichrist to appear. That there are precursors. There are, it's called typology, kind of like Joseph was a prefigure of Christ in a lot of ways, as was David in a lot of ways. So this is called typology. So I think what he's saying that this is either the end of this round of judgment for your people or the end of the world. And I think that you can, uh, you can apply both reasonably. Well, let's get into what it actually means here. Verse 20. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. This is quite plain. And I do want to point that out just so briefly. Most of the time, when there is this very highly symbolic prophecy in the Bible, we're given a lot of details of what it means. And it's, we do a disservice to the church when we say things like, don't bother to understand it. All that matters is that Jesus is coming back. There's a lot of detail given here. So let's look at this. The two-horned ram is the Medo-Persian Empire, very often today just called the Persian Empire. Now, why are there two horns? Well, we've already discussed this. In chapter 2, verse 39, it was the chest and the arms of silver on the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw. And in chapter 7, verse 5, this was the lopsided bear. Remember the bear that had one side raised up? Because this empire began as an alliance between the kingdom of Media and the kingdom of Persia. But as they were allied, the Persians gained ascendancy over the Medes to the point where the kings were no longer Medes, they were Persians, and that was the name by which history knows them. So this latter horn, the horn that came up later, was greater than the former. The Medes and the Persians initially were allies of Babylon to take down Assyria, and that, at that point the Medes were ascendant over them, but that changed especially with Cyrus, who was the great king of Persia. So that's why we can tell Daniel is giving very accurate history here. It's symbolic history, but in the same, it is history. It is prophecy at, at this point in time. But we look back and, wow, he got it exactly right. And they did indeed rampage over the north, the south, and the west. They didn't go to the east. They were from the east. They took over Babylon. They took over Egypt. They got a key victory in Lydia, which was up in modern-day Turkey. And nobody could stop them. And it all happened from Susa, where Daniel was having this vision. Now, the goat refers to the empire that came after them. This is the Greek empire. We, we call them Greece based on the Latin name. They would have called themselves, and, and they still call themselves today, Hellas. So anytime you hear of the Hellenistic Empire, that's Greece, as we would call it. And he says that that single horn is the first king. And that first king we know was Alexander the Great. You have here biblical prophecy, hundreds of years ahead of time, of Alexander the Great. And it was Alexander who conquered Persia in retaliation for their attacks on the Greek city-states. If you know the story of the Battle of Thermopylae, when the Persians attacked the 300 Spartans, this was Persia trying to extend its empire up into Europe. And the Greeks won some key victories at the Battle of Marathon. If you ever run a marathon, that's because the victory message came from Marathon back to the city to announce victory. And that's where also the Nike means victory in uh, 
Greek. So that's why you see it on all this athletic stuff, because in Marathon, when he finished up, he called out Nike, which meant victory. They also won the Battle of Salamis, which was a sea battle. It was a very, very key victory that they had that kind of stopped the push of Persia. Now, because of that, because Persia had been constantly pushing up into Greece, Greece was like Athens. It was, it was Sparta. It was all of these disparate city-states that kind of ruled themselves. Well, there was a man named Philip II of Macedon, which is Macedonia, right? Philip II, what he did that was so amazing was he united all of these city-states into one country. Now, when he died, this alliance was about to fall apart, except for his son, who was only 20 years old at the time, named Alexander. And Alexander united the Greek empire in a way his father never had. And he began a conquest, not just of Persia, but beyond Persia, all the way down to India and throughout just about all of the known territory of Asia at the time. And it happened fast. It was like a goat flying over the ground. Like he's not even taking the time to put his feet down. He conquered quickly. In three years, he destroyed Persia, which was the greatest empire in the world at the time. He won key victories at places like Issus, and he won the final battle against Darius III at Gaugamela, which was in 331 BC. And there's just so much you could say about Alexander the Great. Uh, he's the one who's famous for cutting the Gordian knot. You ever heard of that? The Phrygians, this was one of the kingdoms in that area, they had a, a knot that had been tied and they, it was supposed to be impossible to undo. And they said, whoever can untie this knot, this Gordian knot, the man named Gordius had first tied it, that he is the one that will rule all of Asia. Alexander showed up and as a man in his 20s might, he took out his sword and he chopped it in half. He said, you didn't say how I had to untie it. So maybe you'll hear that in, in politics sometimes. They'll say, we've got to cut this Gordian knot. We've got to find a way to solve this insoluble problem. He was not only a general, he was a warrior himself. Alexander the Great would march at the front of his army on his white horse, whose very famous horse named Bucephalus. History tells us, or maybe this is legend, I don't know, <laughs> that he would stand 13 feet tall when he sat on this horse because it was enormous. That's a big old horse, so who knows? But in any case, he would be the first one. He would be the point of attack, charging into these, these armies. And by doing that, it was so intimidating that even if they had the advantage over them, they would shy away from Alexander. That's why he was called the Great. He's the one who famously, when he conquered India, he wept because history tells us there were no more worlds to conquer. We filled in all the gaps on the map and there's no more war to fight. Now we know that there was, but uh, you know, they didn't have geography like we do now. And also travel wasn't like what it is today. But Alexander died in Babylon of all places. I find that very significant. In 323 BC at age 32. Age 30. I'm 31 now. And I think about what he did in that time and can't help but feel a little small. <laughs> We're not quite sure how he died. Uh, he, they are some who say that he was sick, had some kind of fever. Uh, some people say that the fever was brought on by the hard party life that he lived, as you can imagine. He was, had been drinking at the time. And of course, at, at that day, they accused people of poisoning Alexander the Great. But when he died, he, was, he left behind two kids and his wife, Roxana. So if you've ever known anybody named Roxanne, she was named after Alexander the Great's wife. But his wife and his two children were assassinated. He had nobody to come after him. So as we read in verse 22 that that one horn was broken, 
and at the height of his power, and was divided into four. Four kingdoms did indeed arise. His kingdom was divided into four pieces under what were called the diadochi, which is Greek for the successors, who succeeded after Alexander. And there were four of them. There was one in Egypt, there was one in Syria, but extended beyond Syria, that's what it was called. There was one in Macedonia, and then there was one just called Hellas, which was Greece. This was the actual region of Greece. North, south, east, and west. The two that concern us the most were the kingdom, the dynasty called the Seleucid dynasty of Syria and the Ptolemy dynasty in Egypt. So Syria and Egypt, because right in the middle of those two things you have the glorious land. You have Israel, right? And they would, in fact, fight over Israel for a very, very long time. But let's just pause before we get to some of that. This prophecy was given around 550 BC, 551, 550 BC. All of that happened more than 200 years later that Persia, well, Persia arose before that, only a few short years after this was given, but Daniel wouldn't even live to see this. But Persia was in fact defeated by one very strong charismatic man leading a new kingdom from the West that at the height of his power was broken into four pieces. And that's exactly what happened. The language and the details confirm that this is exactly the case. If you are reading this with an open and honest heart, it is impossible to deny the reality of this prophecy. Can you see why secular scholars say this had to have come later? Like, well, history tells us and archaeology tells us and then language analysis and tradition tells us that it came before this. Well, it couldn't because it's so specific. But, you know, Alexander and Persia are not the emphasis of this vision. The emphasis of this vision is on one of those Greek successor kingdoms and one of the successors that would come after Alexander. Let's read verse 23 and 26 now. And at the latter end of their kingdom, I mean, one of those four kingdoms, right? At the latter end, when the transgressors have reached their limit, which is always how God does it, he will allow sin to go until he must judge it. A king of bold face, this is the little horn, one who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. The little horn, the little horn represents a bold, shrewd king who will arise at the latter end of one of these successor kingdoms. You hear little horn and it reminds you of what we read last time in chapter seven, the little horn that came out of the fourth beast. Do you remember this? This was the fourth terrible beast that had 10 horns that represented 10 kings. But it said three of those horns were uprooted and an 11th came up, the little horn that became greater than all the others. And that was a prophecy of the Antichrist. This is not the same thing. It's a little horn. It is another little horn. But notice, this is coming out of the Greek kingdom, the successors of the Greek kingdom, which was represented by a four-headed leopard in the previous chapter. Again, four, very significant, right? 
But the similarities are very important. You are expected to read this reference to this little horn and compare him to the one from the previous chapter. So this is not the capital A Antichrist. This is to use John's language and little a Antichrist. All right? He says this king's power is going to be diabolical in source. It's not his power. That he's going to be supported by the devil. And he will be unstoppable. That he's going to do whatever he wants. He's even going to afflict the saints. You read in verse 25, he shall make deceit prosper. He shall become great in his own mind. He will rise up against the prince of princes, who is, of course, the Lord himself. He's going to be arrogant. He's going to have divine pretensions, Daniel is saying. But that his end will be swift and sudden. So he says there's going to be a king that's going to come out of one of those four successor kingdoms. He's going to be great. He's going to be an act of judgment upon God's people and upon the kingdom of Greece itself. It's going to arrogate itself against God, and he's going to oppress the saints in the glorious land, which would be the Jews. So even here, obliquely, we know that the Jews are going to be back in their land at this time, which was not the case yet. And Gabriel confirms 2,300 evenings and mornings. That's how long this oppression is going to last. Although he does say, seal it up, by the way, is not keep it secret as much as write it down, make sure that it's known because it's going to be for much later. God wants everybody to know, I predicted this, I foretold this ahead of time. Now, as I already said, there were four kingdoms that came after Alexander. The two that concern us are the Ptolemies in Egypt. That was their dynastic name. Cleopatra was of the Ptolemy dynasty. And the Seleucids, who were over the kingdom of Syria. And they were fighting over the land of Judah and Israel for some time. The Ptolemies had ascendancy over Judah, meaning the the Egyptian kingdom had authority over Judah, until a man came named Antiochus IV, known to history as Antiochus Epiphanes. We'll explain what that means in just a few minutes. Now, Antiochus was not the first in line for the throne, but he was made regent of the throne in in this kingdom until the time, I believe it was one of his nephews, who would get old enough to take the throne. But he was such a cunning political manipulator and such a ruthless assassin that he took over the throne and became the king himself. And he was the Seleucid king that finally and ultimately subdued the Ptolemy dynasty in Egypt. He was a great, mighty king. But he is notorious in history, not for his victories, but for his persecution of the Jewish people. He was a king that had had enough of the Jews and almost was obsessed, you might say devilishly obsessed, Satan was inspiring him to force a Hellenization upon the Jewish people. Hellenization, remember, Hellas is the proper name of Greece here. So to Hellenize something means to apply Greek culture to it. This is why when Paul and Barnabas would go out preaching the gospel, everybody was speaking Greek. It's why your New Testament was written in Greek, even though Rome was the empire at the time. But this would not just happen naturally in other nations. He would force this upon the people of Israel. He would force this. He even says there in the the prophecy from before, he would throw down the stars. Now, what does that mean? Throw down the stars and raise himself against the heavenly host. We're going to get into this more in chapter 10, but this is describing spiritual warfare. 
We're going to read in chapter 10, verse 20, that the, the angel is going to tell Gabriel that we're fighting now against the prince of Persia, and then the prince of Greece will come. These are angelic princes, or demonic princes, we might say, that there's going to be victory even in the heavenly realm over the land of Israel. And this is something that we have to remember, that we are seeing things happen in the flesh, but that there is a spiritual dimension to these things. And he will arrogate himself against the prince of princes. He will raise himself up against God himself. Let me explain to you some of the things that Antiochus did while he was king over Judah. In 171 BC, he executed Onius III, who was the last legitimate high priest. He executed him and began accepting bribes for who wanted to be the high priest. And this unfortunately would continue even to the Roman era where men like Caiaphas and Annas would pay for the privilege of being high priest. In 169 BC, he entered the temple, even into the Holy of Holies, and stripped it. He took away the lampstand, he took away the ark, he took away the golden table, and he stripped all the gold off of the walls of the temple. He completely devastated it. It was still functional, but he had taken away everything. Then in 167 BC, two years later, he went back to the temple and erected images of himself and of Zeus in the holy place, God's holy place in his temple. He sacrificed pigs on the bronze altar, which of course pigs were unclean. They were never to be sacrificed there. He outlawed circumcision. He outlawed the observance of the Sabbath. He ordered every Torah, every copy of the scriptures to be burned. He executed mothers and their children who were circumcised. If you circumcise your child, Antiochus would have the mother hanged and the child hanged around her neck while she died. He was a brutal, terrible ruler. He minted coins of his face on them that had the words Antiochus Theos Epiphanes. Theos is like the word theology, it means God. Epiphanies, you know what it is when you have an epiphany. It's like you've seen in the light for the first time. It means to appear or to manifest. So he was forcing the children of Israel to use coins that declared himself to be Antiochus, the manifestation of God. And before long, it became compulsory to worship not just Zeus, but himself, Antiochus. They used to call him Antiochus Epimanes, which is a rhyming word, obviously, that means the madman because of what he did. All of these outrages led to the Maccabean revolt. You maybe have never read the books of the Maccabees. They're not scripture, but they are excellent tradition and history. And I recommend that you go on and, and read them and find out what happened after the book of Malachi before we get to the book of Matthew. I wish I could tell the whole story because it really is an exciting story to tell about. But what ended up happening is there was a, there was a, priest that refused to offer sacrifices to the pagan gods. And so what happened is there was another priest that said, well, well, I'll do it. I don't care. And so he said, I'll, I'll sacrifice to these gods. And the high priest struck down that priest while he was offering sacrifices. And when he did that, this old man that killed this, this false priest, they took hold of the Greek soldiers that had been sent to enforce this and they killed them all. They had to go into hiding into the wilderness. And this, this high priest had five sons. And the greatest of his sons was a guy named Judas Maccabeus. Maccabeus means the hammer. <laughs> Judah the hammer was his name. And they led a rebellion 
against Antiochus. That, that there's a whole long story. There's all they re, you know operated under guerrilla warfare, and then they raised an army and they marched on Jerusalem while Antiochus was out of town. And in 164 BC, they took back Jerusalem. They cleansed it, and that's where you get the story of Hanukkah, which is when they did not have enough oil to light the lampstand in the in the holy place because it takes eight days to purify it, and God made the oil last. For eight days. Now that story is not in scripture, but in John 10, 22, Jesus goes to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of dedication. And Hanukkah means dedication. So Jesus is celebrating Hanukkah in the book of John. So this is what Daniel is prophesying. Can you see how, again, spot on this is? More than 200, almost 300 years before this? He said this would last not only what was going to happen, that there'd be this awful king that rises up and oppresses God's people, but he gave a time for it. 2,300 evenings and mornings. There are two different interpretations of what that time means. And it's not just between like liberal and conservative. John Walverd looks one way. Dwight Pentecost goes the other way, who are the two famous pre-trib guys. They disagreed on this. So uh, I, I tend to pick the first option. By 2300 evenings and mornings, either this refers to days, right? An evening and morning was the first day, which would be 2300 days. Or there are some that say evenings and mornings refers to an evening sacrifice and a morning sacrifice. So you would cut that number in half because it would take 1150 days to have 2300 sacrifices. I'm not convinced by that. It seems kind of cute to me, if you know what I mean. Uh, But if if it's 1150 days, then the timeline would be the defiling of the temple to the restoration of the temple. But we are actually kind of loose on what that date would be. So that's one more reason I'm not into it. If it's the former 2,300 days, which is just over six years, that places it almost exactly from the execution of the high priest to the restoration of the temple, from 171 BC to 164 BC. However you describe that, it is plain that God knew exactly how much time he had given to Antiochus, and he was not going to give him one day longer. That's an assuring thought to know, isn't it? That when bad rulers rise up, that the Lord has their days fixed. And it says that this guy would be struck down, though by no human hand. Antiochus received the news and I'm not sure if this was, I don't think this was the cleansing of the temple. I, forgive me for not writing it down. But I believe this was when he sent some generals to go and bring these Jews back into the fold. When that army was defeated, Antiochus heard the news and he was struck down with sickness and died. And that's, that's Josephus that gives us that history. We do know for a fact he was not assassinated. He was not killed in battle, but he was struck down. There's some records that even say he was eaten by worms, and that's why he died, which is very similar to, well, not similar, it's exactly what happened to King Herod in the book of Acts, if you remember that story. I hope you can see how specific this prophecy is, even down to the date of how long this was going to last. He said there's going to be, after Babylon, Right? Belshazzar's reign, we're in the, the twilight days of Babylon. But God tells Daniel what's going to happen. He says, there's going to be a kingdom that's going to rise up. That's really going to be two kingdoms together, although one is stronger than the other. That's Medo-Persia. And they're going to rampage across the whole world, except to the east, because they're going to come from the east. But then there's going to be another kingdom that's going to come, and it's going to go so fast, it's going to blow everybody's mind. And there's going to be one prominent king that does this. But at the height of his power, he's going to be broken, and the kingdom will be split up into four different pieces. And out of one of those kingdoms... 
is going to come a little horn, a prefigure, a foretaste of the ultimate Antichrist to come. He's going to be stronger than anybody who came before him. He's going to be shrewd. He's going to be powerful. He's going to oppress the people of Israel. He's even going to arrogate himself against the God of the universe and declare that they have to worship him. But his day is only going to last 2,300 evenings and mornings. And then he's going to be struck down, not by the hand of men, but by the hand of God and the temple will be restored. And that is exactly what happened. It's exactly what happened. So you you look at this and you say, well, he had to have written it later, unless you believe in God, in which case God told us what was going to happen. This prophecy was fulfilled to the letter. But let's remember one thing here. This is, as Gabriel said, for the time of the end. Now remember, this can either be the end of God's indignation against Israel, and I think that it it is at least that, but I think that this also is teaching us something about the end with a capital E. It has an eschatological lesson for us to learn. Antiochus IV is the Old Testament picture of the coming Antichrist, and I mean the last Antichrist, the one that we read about last time, the one that will be defeated by Jesus Christ himself, the first future resident of the lake of fire. We learn about one of these men by seeing the other. You look at Antiochus IV, and by comparing him to a little horn, the Lord is telling us, you look at what this guy did. It's going to be like that, except much worse. Will you turn with me to Revelation chapter 13? I'm going to read a longish section here. I mentioned last time that Daniel chapter 7, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and Revelation chapter 13 are the three passages you need to know. They are the most detailed about the Antichrist. Not a very pleasant subject to study, maybe, but it's in your Bible and you need to know it. And this is the the New Testament apocalyptic picture of the Antichrist. And what I want you to see is, first of all, just learn it and know what God says is going to happen, but just compare how similar this is to what we just discussed about Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the Old Testament foreshadow of this guy. I'll read verses 1 through 8. I saw a beast rising out of the sea, John writes. Familiar picture. With ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Can you see how it's got aspects of all those kingdoms that came before? All the worst aspects of Babylon, Persia, and Greece are bound up in this final empire. And to it, the dragon, that's the devil, gave his power and his throne and great authority. Remember, his authority is not from himself. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, three and a half years, time, times, and half a time. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. 
then it continues and it talks about the false prophet and adds more details, but I think that'll, that'll hold us for today. Now, this passage in Revelation 13 cannot refer to Antiochus IV. There are some who want to say all these Antichrist stuff, it was, it's all past. It's all Antiochus. Stop acting like what's going to happen to you is the same thing as what happened to them. John is writing this well after the death of Antiochus Epiphanes. This is somebody else, which is what Jesus told us. We, we read about the abomination of desolation, that Antiochus has set up an image of himself in the holy place. But then in Matthew 24, 15, Jesus tells those that are living in Israel at the time to watch out for the abomination of desolation. The idea being, there's another one coming. It is yet future. You cannot avoid that if you're going to read the Bible as it is written. But the similarities between the two are striking, aren't they? They're supposed to be. They are prophesied to be similar to one another. As John foretold in 1 John 2.18, there have been many antichrists, but the, the one with a capital A is coming. The worst of the worst is coming. There have been many terrible world rulers that could reasonably be referred to as an antichrist. And yet, they're not the guy. They're not the guy. Just like Antiochus IV, the Antichrist will rise up out of an existing kingdom, right? This is going to be out of a revived empire. He's going to rise up in the midst of this. He too will be shrewd and deceitful. We're going to read about that more in Daniel 9, but we read it here as well. It was given wisdom. It was given the ability to conquer and to rule. He too will be empowered by Satan, just like Antiochus IV had this satanic obsession with beating down this little kingdom in the middle of his empire. So also, it says that the beast was given authority from the dragon. And you can understand why Satan is referred to as a dragon, can't you? He was the serpent in the garden, but in the end, he's pictured as like the ultimate evil serpent, the dragon. Like Antiochus, the Antichrist will win great military victories. He'll conquer the world. Like Antiochus, he will oppress the saints, specifically the Jews. You, re you read through the, the book of Revelation, specifically the Jews. However, anybody who comes to faith during Christ during that time, and there will be a multitude that cannot be numbered that will believe in Christ during this time, but they will be oppressed by him as well. He too will raise an image of himself in the holy place and claim to be God and demand and insist upon worship, and he will be given it by almost everyone. But his time too, like Antiochus had 2,300 evenings and mornings, he's got 42 months. The Antichrist time is very specifically numbered. And he too will be cut down by no human hand. Antiochus died of worms. The Antichrist is going to die by the breath of the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. This thing is absolutely sure. There's lots of details to discuss in prophecy, and it's a lot of fun to bring them all together. But today's lesson is very simple. A man like this will arise in the end of days, and he will afflict the world until Jesus returns. That is coming. That is coming. Now, of course, Daniel chapter 8 has very little to say about the rapture and the timing of the rapture. In fact, it has nothing to say about it. I've already mentioned we believe in the pre-tribulational rapture. However, again, if we see the abomination of desolation, we were wrong, and we better run. <laughs> Isn't it remarkable, the detail that's given in these things? Shall we read the last verse of Daniel 8 together? And I, Daniel, was overcome. Imagine 
hearing about those kinds of things happening to America, your people being afflicted this way. I was overcome, and I lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. We have more understanding than he did because we can look back and see how it was fulfilled. One more story about Alexander. After Alexander the Great defeated Tyre, Ezekiel 26 talks specifically about how the city of Tyre would be destroyed. It said they're going to tear down your walls and they're going to make you a place where they're going to be stretching their nets. Alexander the Great, this is the kind of guy he was. Tyre was that famous shipping city. They, they were the first, we believe, to circumnavigate Africa and go through the Red Sea and all the way around. They were, they were arrogant people because they were so economically powerful. It doesn't matter who the king was. He's got to go through Tyre. So fine, conquer whoever you want, but you still need our money. And what they did is they had the, the city proper was on the land, but they had a citadel that was on an island just off the shore. And what they would do is they would hole up in the citadel until the guy was ready to make peace. Alexander destroyed the city and used the rubble to build a bridge to the citadel and destroyed it, just like Ezekiel had prophesied. After that victory, the next on his list was Jerusalem. And Josephus tells us this story, that when Alexander arrived at Jerusalem, the priests came out and welcomed him. They showed him the prophecy of Daniel chapter 8, that the king of Greece would come and destroy the king of Persia. Alexander was so impressed, he spared the city. He offered sacrifices to Jehovah in the temple. And he claimed that the face of the high priest was the face of an angel that the gods had sent to him, telling him that he needed to go and conquer the world. That's history. That Alexander the Great himself saw this prophecy and believed it was about him and spared the sanctuary. Our God is the only God able to tell the end from the beginning. He's worthy of great praise. Even Alexander the Great recognized that. And he was no Christian by any stretch of the imagination. By seeing these things, it ought to lead us to praise our Lord and bow the knee before him. And I don't want to harp on this every week. But I will just say, some people, and a lot of people, who get into study of, of eschatology and end times prophecy, miss this. And it becomes not about praising the Lord for his wisdom and what he's able to do. It becomes about getting angry at all the other people that disagree with you. That's not right. When Daniel saw these things, he fell on his face. He was overwhelmed, like John was. That's our response, is to bow the knee to Jesus Christ, the Son of God who's going to come and take back the kingdom one day. Not only that, by seeing the accuracy of this fulfilled prophecy, you can know for certain that the rest of them are going to be fulfilled too. If God has already filled those, he's going to fulfill the rest of them. If Daniel has come true, then so is Matthew 24 going to come true, and so is Revelation going to come true. You know, it's interesting. People try to do the same thing with Revelation that they do with Daniel. They try to say, all of this has already happened even though we know quite obviously it hasn't. Those same people will tell you not to press the details too closely. But let me put it to you this way. If this prophecy here of the goat and the ram and the four horns and the little horn, if all of that was fulfilled in great detail in history, that should tell us that our method of studying Bible prophecy ought to be the same. 
We should expect these things to be fulfilled with the same level of detail and specificity. It tells us things like numbers matter. They're not just random numbers. They're specific numbers. It should tell us things like when the Bible says a king, he means a king. That when God says seven, he means seven. When the Lord says the whole world will bow down and worship, he means exactly that. There are many that say, oh, what difference does it make? And this is not what it was intended. Daniel never meant it to be interpreted that way. Well, the Lord sure seemed to mean it that way. Because that's how it was interpreted. You can even draw certain implications out of these things. For example, when Daniel was given this prophecy, he's, he's talking about the saints and the sanctuary in Israel being oppressed by Antiochus. When Daniel heard this, the temple was destroyed and Israel was not dwelling in the promised land. So by implication, he could have inferred, okay, we're going to be back in the land and the temple's going to be rebuilt. In the same way, Jesus said that you are going to see the Antichrist standing in the holy place and declaring himself to be God. There is no holy place there right now. It's the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Dome of the Rock that is on the Temple Mount right now. So it is absolutely biblically appropriate to expect that the temple will be rebuilt. Now, I don't know if that's something that we should be hoping for, because when that happens, the, what's going to happen is it's going to be defiled. And not only that, we can know that if the Lord brought this judgment upon not only his own people, but upon Persia and upon Antiochus, the Seleucid Empire. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is coming back to judge sin, to judge all of humanity. We best sit up and pay attention, right? If Jesus is coming back and, you know, Jesus came the first time and he came as the lamb to pay for sins, in the book of Revelation, he says, I'm coming and I'm bringing my recompense with me. I'm coming as the lion this time. It's going to be judgment for that day. He came to pay for sin. Now he's coming to judge sin. And here's what you need to know. You've got to bow the knee to Jesus now. Because if you don't, as we just read in Revelation 13, you will fall for this guy. Well, I would never. Oh, yes, you would. Because it's not going to be you. It's going to be the devil empowering this man. He's going to do signs and wonders that are going to deceive the whole world. If possible, Jesus said, even the elect, even the Jews and the, the believers living at that time will be deceived by this guy. If you do not have the protection and covering of the Holy Spirit, you will fall for it. And even if you don't live to see these days, if you are not now believing in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you are open to deception. You're open to lies. You will believe spiritual things that make no sense. Because the devil is after you. But if you are here today, you are hearing the truth declared. If you're listening to this on the radio, if you're watching it on the live stream, you are hearing the truth declared that the king to come in the end is going to be Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter how many false kingdoms rise up first, it's Jesus. And as much as we say we want to put a stop to globalism, we want to put a stop to one world currency, we want to put a stop to these, these oppressive systems, it's going to happen. It's going to happen because the Lord has foretold it. Yeah. Now, right now, Thessalonians tells us God is restraining wickedness. But one day he's going to lift that hand of restraint and the end will come swiftly like a thief in the night. And it's going to take everybody by surprise. They're going to be saying peace and safety and calamity will come and his name will be Antichrist. You must turn and believe and not, not, 
Not the prophecies themselves, but in the God that is able to give these prophecies. The only Lord who is able to tell the end from the beginning and has the power to make all of his counsel come to be.